Let's take a moment. I want to pray here in the beginning of our time. And I thought I'd just take a moment and if we could uh, uh, take some time to pray and reflect on what happened in Paris this week and uh, pray for those that are grieving uh, lost ones. So pray with me. Uh, Father of mercy, we uh, start this morning here by talking with you and uh, our hearts were both saddened and angered at what we witnessed this past week. And we pray for those that are grieving the loss of life in such a horrific way. And we do pray, Father, you're, you, you tell us to pray for our leaders. God, they have such, Father, they have such hard decisions and hard choices. It's, how does how this addressed? And we pray that you would give them wisdom and they would lean on you. God, to know how to confront this growing evil and unrest in our world. We pray that you would somehow, Father, turn this evil and redeem it for good. And we don't know how you do that. But God, we know that you're working. You're not the cause of evil, but we know that you can redeem it. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. We are uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and it's page 945, if you're following along in that text in front of you, Bible in front of you, to introduce our topic this morning, I want to cite a book called Influence. It's by a man named uh, Robert Caldini, and he tells a fascinating story about the owner of a jewelry store who was having trouble moving some of the merchandise, specifically She had an abundance of turquoise and silver Native American jewelry. (coughs) Now, she tried every conceivable trick to sell this jewelry, put it in the main display case, asking the sales staff to push it. Nothing worked. And so on her way out of town for a business trip, she scribbled on a note that said to her, her retail clerk, slash it in half, the price. The problem was the clerk read that half as two and doubled the price. Well, what happened is all the jewelry sold. And the astonishing part was that rather than slashing the price in two, she had actually doubled it. So how did she manage to sell the unsellable jewelry? Caldini explains that people never questioned the the value of the jewelry. They just assumed that an expensive price tag must translate into valuable and into good jewelry. We live in a world where the price tags have been flipped. Someone has increased the price on things that are not valuable, and we have allowed ourselves to be taken in by it. Now, Last week, we introduced to you the ancient world of Corinth. And indeed, there the Apostle Paul argued the price tags in that city had been flipped. Throughout its streets, there were these impressive and sophisticated speakers. And they were articulating a vision of the pathway of wisdom, extolling certain virtues of excellence and morality. One of the famous 
first century speakers was a man named Dio Chrysostom. He describes the acclaim he received when he entered into the city. He said, I am escorted here with much enthusiasm and respect. The recipients of my visits being grateful for my presence and begging me to address and advise them and flocking around my door from early dawn, all without my having incurred any expense. Now this vision of wisdom articulated by these Greek orators did not have the power to restrain them from profiting greatly. These first century speakers abandoned the old practice of Socrates to never charge for their lessons, so to speak. Nor did their wisdom have the power to restrain them from competition and from quarrels. Literally, uh, rival groups studying under different people, articulating this pathway to vision, would get into quarrels and fights, and sometimes people would even die. And that's exactly where we find this five-year-old Corinthian church. Adopting the wisdom of its surrounding community, it had broken into rival followings. And to this, Paul says, it is time for you to grow up. And for that, Paul said, you will need a different understanding of wisdom. Not the wisdom emerging from the ethos and the expectations of your neighbors, but the wisdom that comes from the cross. Now, Paul said that back then, and he could say it to us today. We too need the wisdom from the cross. But not only that, we need a wisdom that empowers us to see what really matters and then to align our lives around what really matters. That takes wisdom. And this next passage will continue to lay this foundation of the wisdom of the cross. I'm going to read this section. Again, it's, uh, if you want to follow along, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. We'll read this and then we'll, we'll just comment on it. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I'd like to try to answer three questions, answer three questions, to help us unpack this somewhat confusing passage. The first question is, what is the secret hidden wisdom of God? Secondly, how do we receive that wisdom? And then thirdly, how do we act on that wisdom? Okay, so first question. What is the secret hidden wisdom of God? If you look at verse 7, Paul refers to this specifically. He's imparting a secret and hidden wisdom. Again, we have to put this in context and remember that the famous speakers outside of Poseidon's temple in Corinth, this is what they were articulating. They were articulating and trying to tap into that we have a secret hidden wisdom that unravels the mystery of life. And yet when it comes to God, these brilliant minds, these great Greek thinkers, what is the best that they could come up with in terms of who they conceive God to be? You might remember from your philosophy 101 class of Plato. Plato was a great, great Greek philosopher, and he tried to figure out what is the meaning of life, what is the essence of life, and Plato could discern that there was some kind of world, perhaps shadowy, perhaps not quite concrete, that existed beyond this life. And he had that very funny but real example. He talked about the ideal chair that existed somewhere in that other world that defines what chairness is. And every chair that is in our world is somehow patterned after that eternal chair. But for Plato, there was no real personal or concept of a personal God. If we slide ahead to two generations past Socrates, we come to Aristotle. Now, Aristotle moved a little bit further in his conception of who God is. For Aristotle, there was an eternal God, perfectly beautiful, and he contemplated only the perfect contemplation. He thought about only the perfect things. And what is the perfect thing? It is itself contemplating. I know, it's a little hard to follow. But this was Aristotle's unmoved mover. You see, through human reason alone, the great Greek philosophers could not arrive at a personal God. A God that could personally engage you. Human reason, which thoughtful Christians don't despise, the philosophy of Plato or Aristotle, they just believe that it's incomplete. Human reason could get them so far, but it could not get them to the God of the Bible. The lesson here is this. If we are to know the divine God, we cannot access Him primarily through the power of the mind. 
Now just think about this with me for a moment because it, it makes very clear logical sense. If God, if we are finite, if we are made of the stuff of the earth, and if God is eternal and divine, then realize the limitations that we have to understand who God is. Because if we are like an artist, if we are like artists, what can we use to paint our picture of God? We can only use the articles and the materials that are available to us. And if we are finite human beings, then our brushstrokes about who God is must come from what we already know. And so our conceptions of God without God speaking to us inevitably reflect the limitations of using earthbound raw materials. We get an incomplete picture of God without God speaking to us and revealing Himself to us. If we are to know the divine, eternal God that is different than, different than us, then He has got to reveal Himself and communicate to us. So what then is the mystery and the hidden wisdom that Paul is referring to in verse 9? Look at verse 9 again. You see, the verse 9, which says, Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, no mind can imagine. Many Christians have interpreted this Scripture to be referring to heaven. But in the context, it's not referring only to heaven, though that's a, that's a good description. It's not referring just to heaven, verse 9. It's referring to the whole of the gospel story. It's not heaven alone that Paul is referring to. It is the entire story of the gospel itself. It is a story of the invisible, holy God sending not just a messenger, not just a leaflet, not just a travel brochure, but sending His very own Son to live and to die and to be raised again. Then, through His Spirit, to make Himself totally available to us. That's what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, that no one could ever imagine. How there could be a God. And this is what Plato and Aristotle and other philosophers could not ever have dreamed of or conceived in a thousand years. How there could be a God so personal, a God so just, a God so kind, a God so moved by our suffering that He would go to unthinkable lengths in order, to, in order to bring us back to Himself. The mystery, therefore, the secret, hidden wisdom of God is not a God content to contemplate. It's not a God content to stay housed in an unchanging universe. It's not even a strong God a strong God in the Stoic sense. But rather, the God of the Bible is a God who acts and a God who actually strips Himself of strength. It's a God who puts on weakness in order to become a human being, to allow His own creation to inflict horrible violence on Him and to crucify Him. This is a God that through human reason we could never, ever have dreamed of or imagined. The Apostle Peter also gives us some perspective 
on this. In chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, Peter said this. Again, he's referring as well to this great mystery, calling it our salvation. This salvation was something that even the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or what situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when He told them in advance about Christ's suffering and His great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves but for you. And now this is good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching for these things to happen. The Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, long to see when the Christ would come. The angelic and heavenly world were anticipating the day that this mystery would finally be revealed. It's why, by the way, just in two weeks, we'll begin the season of Advent to capture and reflect this eager anticipation. Go back to verse 7 for a moment. Paul says, This mystery was decreed. This is the language of a king. Of a king giving a decree with unshakable, unalterable force. It will happen. And why does the king do it? He does it for our glory. Meaning, he does it with our acceptance. He does it that God might accept us through what Christ has accomplished. Who could have ever imagined that a king, an eternal king, would send not merely angelic or human messengers, but would send his very own son? That is a secret, hidden mystery now revealed by Paul. So it leads inevitably to the second question. How do I get that? How do I receive that kind of wisdom? How do I tap into that? How do I plug into that? I found this story very helpful to explain it. One author wrote this. I didn't pick up her name. She says, over the years I've been part of various book groups. I'm sure some of you participate in book groups. Typically, several friends read a book and then we get together to discuss the ideas that the author has put forward. Inevitably, one person will raise a question none of us can answer. And then someone will say, if only we could ask the author. Right? If only we could ask the author. Have you ever said that to yourself? I definitely have. This year, I finally finished Crime and Punishment. I think after three or four failed attempts. I knew the book was a story of great a story of crime, the workings of the conscience, guilt, redemption. But if you were forced to read it in high school, as I apparently was not, you know that Dostoevsky is not a very uh, easy read. It's not light reading. So this time, I found some spark notes online. And so I'd read a couple of chapters, then go to the online, go to the spark notes to see what I missed or what I misunderstood. But what if we could raise, what if I could raise 
What if Dostoevsky could be raised from the dead? And if I could have an intimate conversation with him to understand these questions, like why did the character say this, or I couldn't follow you here, or why does every character have four or five different names? One of the most frustrating things about Russian literature. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? And yet look at verses 10 through 12, because this is the exact very thing that we have in Christ. These things, in verse 10, referring to the story of God becoming a man, these things God has revealed to us how? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. How do we receive this wisdom? It is by the one who is alive today through the Spirit of God. And what is he the author of? He is the author of the Word of God. He is the author of this book, God's Word. And so the intersection of spiritual wisdom and the human heart, the way that God speaks to us is primarily through this book. To be Christ-empowered, we must become Christ-centered. To be Christ-centered, we must have the words of God living and pulsing through our veins. I like how Randy Alcorn said it about this intersection between the human heart and spiritual wisdom. He says the way of the Spirit is the way of the Word. The Spirit speaks through and in conjunction with the Word. He opens my mind to certain principles, implications, and unique applications of His truth. But the raw material the Holy Spirit uses is the revealed truth itself. You see, whenever and wherever you interact with the Word of God, it is not merely a cognitive or informational exchange. We can't confuse what happens here on a Sunday morning with, say, a university or a high school lecture. In a university or high school lecture, there's an exchange, a cognitive exchange of information. It's one way from the teacher to the students. We must be careful not to assume that that's the dynamic that takes place here or in your individual quiet time, your individual time of study or in when your small group gathers. It's a much more dynamic communication. It's not only horizontal, but it is first and foremost vertical communication from God to us. When we are aware of the presence of the Spirit, it can be dynamically spiritual when you open up your Bible in any setting. It has the potential to be two-way vertical communication. God is seeking to speak and to make the Word come alive in me through His Spirit. I believe this is what Paul is saying here in this passage. Now, for our part, for our part to make this real, for our part, it begins with what I long for, what I am desperate for. If I want facts only about God, 
I will receive that partially. If I want only just greater knowledge of the Bible for knowledge's sake, you'll receive that partially. If that is what you want, that's what you'll receive. But if, I am, if I'm really desperate to relate to God honestly, if I'm desperate for Him to speak to me, if I want Him to reveal Himself to me, to let me share in the life of the Holy Spirit, to receive, as Jesus said in Luke 11, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then, then I, can, I can play a role in that by preparing my heart, making my heart ready to receive spiritual wisdom. Now, circling back to that story that I began this question with, the story of the book club, the person goes on and writes, she says how different it is for those of us who gather to study the Bible. Jesus meets with us whenever we get together. No fees, no scheduling conflicts, no travel expenses. Furthermore, we have the Holy Spirit to guide our understanding. That was one of Jesus' last promises to his disciples. So the author of the Bible is not limited by time or space. He can meet with us anytime. He can meet with us in any place. So whenever we have a question, we can go to the author and have the assurance that he will answer. Maybe not quite in our timetable, or maybe not even the answer that we're looking for, but we can have assurance that indeed the author will help us and answer our questions. So, Before I go to the final question, let me just review. Number one, we asked, what is the secret, hidden wisdom of God? And it is a story that we could have never come up with. The story of God becoming a man and dying on a cross. Second question is, how do we receive that wisdom? It is by responding to Him with a surrendered heart. We receive spiritual wisdom through the Spirit, by the Spirit. Someone said it this way, and I can't locate the source, but I really like this quote for how it says it so concisely about this intersection. He wrote that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to teach the people of God that we might bear the image of God. Okay, Let's go to this final point, third question. So, what differences does this make? How do we act on this wisdom from God, this wisdom from the cross. We've seen how it's different from the ethos of the world, but how does it intersect with our lives practically? Number one, it opens up our eyes to see what matters. It has a profound impact on our lives because we can see with clarity, HD clarity, what matters, and we need that. You think about all the things in our world that people invest in that don't matter. You ever heard of the Ig Nobel Awards? The Ig Nobel Awards take place every September at Harvard University. They are a parody of the Nobel Nobel Prizes. I should say Ig Ig Nobel. Uh, But they're a parody of the Nobel Prize. And uh, they reward uh, obviously shallow and meaningless research projects done by people. For example, 
One past winner. I'll just give you a couple examples. One past winner was a 1996 award winner or a winner in physics. Now, these are real, honest-to-goodness research projects. People, like, asked for money for this. Robert Matthews, uh, it's a university in England. He literally studied Murphy's Law, particularly for showing that toast often does fall on the buttered side. It's a real, that's a real research project. Here's another one, 1999, also in the physics category. Dr. Len Fisher of Sydney, Australia, received the award for calculating the optimal way to dunk a biscuit. Now, if he changed that to donut, I might actually spend a little bit of money on that one. I could go on. They're all sort of just crazy, crazy nonsense type deals. But, but people spend money on this. And um, wisdom, what wisdom teaches us, the wisdom given to us by the Spirit helps us to invest our lives in things that really matter. Paul understood this about wisdom and what matters. And in the context of what we're talking about today with these Greek orators, these very impressive speakers, Paul understood that it wasn't impressive speech. It wasn't showing off your intellect. It wasn't embellishing facts. It wasn't manipulating emotions. It wasn't extracting wealth from vulnerable followers. The things that mattered so much to the, this, this way, of, way of wisdom. Look at verses 1 through 5. We'll circle back to this chapter. Look at how Paul painted a picture of what mattered to him. He says, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Now, I'd like just to interact with this passage for just a moment personally in my own life. Since I am a speaker, <laughs> and this is a, a, a standard bearer for every Christian leader and for every Christian speaker, and I have to say again that when I read this passage, it continues to haunt me. And I see in myself the same list that I just gave you about the, what the Greek orators valued. I, I see all those same temptations. I see all those same tendencies to you know, embellish facts, to try to be impressive, to manipulate emotions. I see all those same temptations and all those same tendencies in this very heart. To make the teaching event not about Jesus, but to make it about me. When I was 16 or 17 years old, I apparently, in several different settings, evidenced or gave evidence to some kind of natural gift for public speaking. Now, that can be debated, um, uh, but that was my perception back then. And I was, you know, pretty insecure, and I was a soul starving for love, and I was a soul starving for attention. And the affirmation that I received after I would give some sort of public message, the 
the love, the affirmation that I would get, that, um, that dug a pretty dig, deep hole into me. And um, I could have never put it this way, but the reality was is that I sort of saw public speaking as being my own personal savior, my own way to, to uh, prove to myself and prove to others that I, I did have something worthwhile. So here I am almost, almost 40 years later, gosh, um, and I'm gazing directly into Jesus' perfectly humble spirit. And, um, and that image that's reflected back to me from looking at Jesus, it continues to show and reveal the deficits, the gaping deficits in my own spirit. What, and it's like 40 years later and it's not fixed yet. And what, what can I do? I, who, who will save me? There's nothing I can do but go back to the beginning point of this whole story, this great story, and to see that the completeness and the wholeness of Jesus continues to be my righteousness. For you see, He the perfect Son, Christ the perfect Son, was a worthy sacrifice to give His life for my deficits, for my personal deficits. And in this great mystery, God the Father, He takes the perfection of Jesus, He takes the works of Jesus, He takes the perfect motives of Jesus, He takes the perfect love of Christ, and He deposits that. Don't ask me how this works. I don't know quite how it works. It's just the Bible just says it. He takes that life and righteousness of Christ and He deposits it into my spiritual bank account so that my deficits on the deficit side are completely seen through what's given in the spiritual account, which is completely full. The Father now relates to me as His fully adopted Son. Jesus' faith is my faith. It is not only the perfection of Christ. It is partly the perfection of Christ that dazzles me. But I'm also equally dazzled by His grace when I gaze at Him. Dazzled by His grace. Dazzled by His perfections. And then so when I come back to that, that truth, that's what brings fresh wind to my soul. That's what creates energy for me to get up and to find new motivation to change and to become more like that perfect picture that I'm gazing at, that I see. You see, the crucifixion is what brings everything back into focus with respect to what matters. It is a reason we gather every Sunday morning. It is a reason that we gather throughout the week in small groups. And I hope you are committed to both disciplines. They are disciplines in a sense. Because what they do is they bring us back to remembering our purpose and remembering what really matters. Looking at this text here, these few verses... Paul did not come to the Corinthians. It says he came in fear and trembling. He was timid and trembling. 
the great Paul. He didn't come with what others would have regarded as a personal strength of a great motivational speaker. His status in the speaker's pecking order was at rock bottom. His marketing strategy, according to the ethos of the day, was a disaster. His first impressions were unremarkable. His picture wasn't going to land on the cover of GQ anytime soon. But Paul didn't trust in those things. He did not trust in those things. His reliance was on the power of God in him. You see, Paul did not want people responding to the force of his personality, which is what the Greek orators did. They wanted people to respond to the force of their personality. That's what Paul was desperately seeking to avoid. He was concerned that they, were, that they not be impressed by him, but that they be impressed by Christ. So wisdom not only helps us to see what matters, it helps us to align our lives with what matters. That's what the power of the Spirit accomplishes in our lives and why Paul is so quick to give the Spirit credit. Spirit empowerment comes as we empty ourselves of ourselves. We come to the end of our seeking through our own human reason to figure out life, and we begin to focus on His life and His words. Finally, look at verse 5 in that passage. Just want to tie this, the first two weeks together with, with a last comment. That your faith might rest in the power of God. Remember how we said last week that the cross was such a symbol of shame? The cross was a symbol of shame. And therefore, the cross eluded all of those who built their identity on wealth, all of those who built their identity on status and prestige, all of those who built their lives on a superior intellect or their natural goodness. For all of those individuals who built their identity on those things, the cross eluded them. For those who built their lives on hipness and coldness, the cross eluded them. Why? Why? Because in its essence, the cross and its shame were not for those who sought to win by virtue of the definition of the world. Here's the reality. If you are compelled to win the world's acceptance at all cost, if the driving force and goal of your life is to win the world's acceptance, then the cross will always elude you. It will always elude you. Because the cross was a symbol of shame. So who then does the cross speak to? (laughs) Who then does the cross draw? If it doesn't draw all these winners. Who does the cross appeal to? Well, the symbol of shame speaks to those who feel shame. The symbol of shame speaks to those who feel shame. The symbol, the cross and its power is for those who enter into the murky waters of admitting their nastiness, (laughs) admitting their slander, admitting their need to control others, 
admitting their hatred for weakness in others, when you start to come to a full embracing of that within you, and you're really, really close to the kingdom. You're close to the kingdom. A cross, which is a symbol of shame, is for those who become acutely aware that their natural goodness, superior reason, or moral record compared to the person of Jesus still yields gaping deficits. When you see that, and if you can embrace that, you're close. You're close to the kingdom. It is when the cross of Jesus becomes not a symbol worn around the neck or a pretty stained glass cut window or something old and rugged, but when you see that it is a sinless man absorbing my shame that I might become free of it, then the wisdom of the cross becomes everything. That is the deep, secret wisdom of God. And that is what changes everything. He took on my shame. He took on what I've done in order to free me from it. As a song that we'll sing here in a few moments says again, to wash away every stain of my guilt. That's the wisdom of God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for these few moments that we can be together this morning and be challenged by, Father, I hope, challenged by the wisdom of the cross. And for whatever people and my friends here are facing this morning and confronted with whatever conflict inside of them or conflict outside of them or confusion inside or confusion outside, my prayer is that in this moment of quiet and solitude, that they could gaze into the perfect Son and not only see His perfections and be terrorized by them, but also see His grace and feel that invitation to whether it's the first time or the hundredth time to come back to the beginning, back to remembering His righteousness. His righteousness covers all. His righteousness has made me an adopted son, an adopted daughter with full rights and full privileges before my Father. Father, you know where every heart is today and what fears and longings they have. I pray that now, because you are the author of this book and because you're here, that your Holy Spirit would seek and lead us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.